0: Bible was written for us. Certain portions of it were written directly to us. Specifically, the letters that Paul wrote to the church, to the churches of his day, and it's applicable to the church in any day. Therefore, it is applicable to us today. And so I'm going to read Paul, a portion of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And do you will uh, turn to it if you choose. I'll read it, but we'll read from the third chapter of the book of Ephesians, beginning with the 14th verse some of us have been to Ephesus one of the great cities of the world one of the great ancient cities of the world today some of the greatest Roman ruins in all the world are in Ephesus but here in Ephesus the congregation was composed of some of the leading Christians of the early church at one time or another the mother of Jesus was there John was the pastor here Uh, Paul was there Timothy was there uh, Barnabas was there. Silas was there. Uh, you just run through the gamut of the New Testament. And so many of them, at one time or another, walked down those very streets uh, in Ephesus. And so Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, a prayer that is applicable to us here at Trinity. Listen to it. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches... And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. Whatever else you want to say about man he is not what he was intended to be. God created the world and God created man and he created him for fellowship. He said now I want you to have everything. I want you to enjoy everything. But there is one tree, and we're talking about some marvelous symbols here from the book of Genesis. There's one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to mess with that tree. Don't don't eat anything from that tree. But because God created man with a free will, you see, we were created in God's image, not, not his physical image, because God is not physical, God is spirit. But he created us as spiritual beings. He created us, in other words, with personality. He created us with the capacity to make choices. We are not robots. We're not mechanical people. God gave us what he has, namely a will. He willed to create. He willed to bring us into existence. And he made us in his image. That means we have the capacity to say yes or no. We have the capacity to say, I will or I won't. God took a great risk in doing that because he probably knew what we would do. And that is that we would uh, simply because it's just human nature that we want to control things, uh, even God. And so we want to be our own God. So the story uh, of man's predicament really begins in the uh, third chapter of the book of Genesis. Now I want you to turn... ...to page 3 in that Bible that's in the book rack there in front of you. Or if you have your own Bible, turn to the third chapter of uh, Genesis... ...or page 3 in this Bible here. Now you see the heading there, it says, The Fall of Man. Now most of you know this story, you know about it, all kinds of books uh, use it as a theme. Movies use it as a theme. Uh, God wanted man to have fellowship with him, but he wanted it to be a loving fellowship a willing relationship, a relationship that man chooses, but man chose otherwise. Man decided that he knew better than God and that he could run the show better than God, and so he took off on his own, and the results were catastrophic. And it has been perpetuated, therefore, on down through the generations and the generations and the generations. I don't know about uh, uh, your genealogical table. Uh, I know a little bit about mine. Uh, And some of the Folks in my genealogical table, I don't want anybody to know about. But uh, that's part of life, isn't it? Uh, You—that's true of everybody. I don't know who's in your genealogical table, but you go back far enough. Every one of us in this congregation here today, and everyone watching on the internet around the world, everyone listening to this tape later on all over the world. We are all, every one of us, all of us, are sons and daughters of old man Adam. We've got the virus within us. And uh, we've made wrong choices. We've been given the opportunity to make a choice. And like, like our forefathers, it's in our bloodstream. Uh, it is our choice. We make a choice. Now, the consequences, you will read, and I'm not going to take time to read the third chapter Of the book of Genesis. But let me give you the consequences. Adam and Eve decided they knew better than God. So they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And suddenly they realized they had done something wrong. And so they started hiding from God. Why did they do that? They felt guilty. And they were guilty. They knew what God had said. There was no question about it. He made made it very clear. The directions were not obscure. He made it very clear. But they decided, well, we're going to try it anyway. What have we got to lose? Well, Adam and Eve, I hate to tell you, but you lost a lot. I mean, here you end up with guilt. You feel terrible. You start hiding yourself from God. And God comes looking for you. Adam, Adam, he said, where are you? And Adam says, I, I hid myself. They hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. And uh, Adam said, I was afraid. I was afraid. So God said, you've broken the, my word. And so the consequences of, of that broken word means that our relationship exists, but the fellowship has been broken. I created you, but I created you for fellowship and you've chosen not to have fellowship with me. You've chosen to run the show yourself and not let me be the Lord of your life that will bless you with all these good things I want to give you. I gave you one prohibition and all you had to do was just keep the rules and everything had been wonderful. But you wanted to taste the forbidden fruit. And so you did. And so the consequence of that is our, our, our fellowship is, is, uh, is shattered here. Now you're still mine. I still created you. And I still love you. And I'll get to that in a moment. So the second result was condemnation. Condemnation. And God pronounced condemnation upon Adam, upon Eve, and upon the serpent. And then, because he had broken fellowship with God, they were separated from God. They were forced out of the garden. And that is the concluding part of that third chapter of Genesis. You read it, uh, turn over to page four, and you will read the consequences of that. He drove the man out. He placed at the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and the flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Man was expelled from the garden. And when he got out there, he started trying in some way to create a facsimile of Eden. And so down through the history of mankind, we have endeavored through peace treaties, through governments, for government reform, thinking if we can just change the government, everything will be okay. If we can just change the people in government, then everything will be okay. If we can just change this social problem or that social problem, we'll be back in Eden, friends. You can't get back that way. There's no way that we can create an Eden separated from God. Uh, Thera Porter was my secretary the first, goodness, 18 years of my ministry here. And she was indispensable uh, to my ministry. I tell you, Thera Porter is one of the saints of God. And in the life of this church, one of the heroes of this fellowship. She was a founding member of this church and she is not well now. And she's in a rest home, but you—I want you to know—if you didn't—if you didn't know Theryl, you missed somebody. One of the best Bible teachers, and just a marvelous person. It's a, it's, this week she has a birthday, by the way. And uh, Theryl came in one day, and this is when we were. We had those nice children's buildings. We had a a children's building. and had the offices crammed in there and had a library crammed in there. I mean, everything was so small you had to go outside to change your mind. It was really, it was a crowded situation. And, uh, but Theryl came in and she said, we we were in there having coffee at about 10 o'clock. And she said, I was listening to a Christian uh, radio station this morning and I heard something that I didn't know. We said, well, what'd you hear? She said, I heard that we will never have, on this earth, we will never have a Utopia. We said, what? I said, that's what he said. I heard this preacher. And he was very sincere. He said, you're never going to have a Utopia on this earth. Oh, you mean Utopia. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's what he was trying to say. Well... The poor guy, he had his theology right, but he didn't understand pronunciation very well. He didn't get a real grasp of the English language, but he had a good grasp of theology. You're not going to have a utopia, and you're not going to have a utopia on this earth. This is not going to happen. The Society of International Law in Paris, France, released some statistics a few years ago. Out of over 6,000 years of recorded history, history is much longer than that, but it's recorded history, out of 6,000 years of recorded history, There have been over only 268 years of world peace. And during that time, there have been over 50,000 peace treaties signed. The futility of man to try to get back in the garden by his own works, by religion, by his own efforts. So what did God do? God said, I'm going to go out after you. I'm going to go out of the garden and try to get the word to you. And that's exactly what you have from Genesis on, is God's loving attempt to reach out to people whom he loved, to each one of us. Even though guilty, even though condemned, and even though separated from God and separated from the garden, God keeps coming and coming and coming to us, trying to bring us back into a relationship with him, which is the only key back into the garden of everlasting life, into the garden of Eden. When Martha and I were in the seminary, we had a chapel speaker one day who was an outstanding scientist, a devoted Christian, and a man who later worked on some of the uh, space uh, science. He was an interesting man. And we were sitting on about the third or fourth row, and he started telling a story, was Martha's favorite story. you probably heard her tell it. She was captivated by this man's story. In fact, so much so that after the fellow finished telling the story, he stopped and pointed out to Martha. Uh, She was sitting on. We were sitting together. I I hadn't noticed her. Look, but he he said that this nice-looking young lady down there really is caught up in this story because she sat there with her mouth open the whole time. (laughs) The story he told was the fact that in the one of the scientific experiments that he had been involved in at one time. They were working with some ants, trying to study and know more about the habits and the practices of ants. Following the verse of scripture, which says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. You know that was in the Bible. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Well, they had gone to study ants. And he stood there watching those ants just work in a way busy as they could be, carrying these big old heavy burdens. And he said, kind of looked around, embarrassed uh, to think that anybody might be overhearing him. And he said to those ants, I love you. I care for you. He said, not one of them looked up. Not one of them said, oh, how wonderful. He said, they just kept right on scurrying around, doing their thing. He said, I saw some of them carrying burdens four or five times their own size. He said, I'd reach down and I'd take that. I said, let me help you with that. He put it over here. Nobody looked up and said, thank you. He said, I did everything I could to try to communicate with those ants. And finally realized that the only way I could ever communicate to those ants would be to become what? To become an ant. That is exactly what God did in his son, Jesus Christ. He became like us. The son of God became a son of man so that we sons of man might again become sons of God. Now, to quote Paul Harvey, I want to get to the rest of the story. And what I want you to do now is turn, keep your finger there on page 3, but I want you to also turn now to page 1119. 1119. In your Bible, if you have your own Bible, it's the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. 1119. From the 3rd chapter of the book of Genesis to 1119, where we're going to get the rest of the story i want you to look at how much of the bible i'm holding up here that's between those two chapters and thousands of years but i want you to know that all in between were god's attempt out of his love to try to get to us and to help us because he cares for us he gave the law why did he give the law to hurt us to condemn us to separate us from him no he gave the law because he said look if you could just keep this then life would be okay for you life would be better So we often think of the Ten Commandments as as God's trying to ruin the party. Turn them around and look at them from a positive perspective. God was saying, "Thou thou shalt do no murder. What he was saying was, don't hurt other people. God was saying, do not steal. In other words, God was saying, respect other people's privacy, other people's property. God was not just saying, don't be sexually involved with somebody else, but be lovingly involved and committed to one person and don't interrupt that relationship in anyone else's life. The, they were all positive statements, but they were couched in negative terms. Man didn't get it. He got the word. Moses gave it to them, and they went right on doing what they'd been doing. So what did he do? In all of these chapters here, all of these pages, thousands of them, He was trying to say, through Moses, through the patriarchs, through all of the prophets, through all of these scriptures, he was trying to say, listen, you've not broken my law, you've broken my heart. For sin is not so much breaking God's law, it's breaking God's heart. And the reason he gave the law was because he loved us. The law is an expression of God's compassion and concern for the welfare of his people that he's created. And so here we come. What are the three consequences of man's disobedience in Adam and in Eve? Guilt, condemnation, and separation. Now look at that 8th chapter of the book of Romans and look at the 31st verse. What then shall we say in response to this? What are we going to do? Look at this dilemma we're in. Look at this can of worms we have opened. How disastrous life has become. What shall we then say in response to this? My, listen, listen to the sound of a trumpet behind this next phrase. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things guilty. Notice that, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, what? All. not just those who tried to keep the law, not just those who were religious, doing good works, endeavoring to get back into Eden on their own. All of us, in varying degrees. In various ways, we've all disobeyed God. All have sinned, the Bible said. All of us. All of us in this room are in the same boat. We've not all sinned alike, but all alike have sinned in one way or another. But what he's saying here is, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He has come to take away your guilt and my guilt. We don't need to try to hide from God. We don't need to crouch over in the corner trying with our own religious attempts to get back into the good graces of God. What he has done, he has come out of the garden into this world. He became a man, just like us, with the exception of sin. He never sinned, but you know what he did? He took all of mine and all of yours and all the sin of the world. He took it into himself in a way that is beyond our human comprehension, and he died for us. He took my sin. He died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us that we might be made right with him. The God came out of the garden in search for man. He has come to take away your guilt. Now guilt serves only one purpose. Only one purpose. Only one purpose and the only Reason for guilt is to remind us that we need to make things right with God. It's just a symptom. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. And we keep trying to treat the symptoms. God wants to treat the source. And the source is our broken relationship with him. Now, nowhere in the Bible will you read that God reconciles himself to man. Boy, remember this, forget everything else, but remember nowhere in the scripture do we read about God having to be reconciled to man. He's always been on your side. He's always loved you. When you read the word reconciled in the scripture, it is man being reconciled to God. He didn't walk out of the garden. He didn't disobey the moral law. We did, and he has come out to get us because he loves us. And the prophets did their best. The patriarchs did their best. The psalmists did their best. All of them did their best to try to communicate God's word does. But like that bunch of ants, we didn't hear it. And so he came in person. He became an ant to carry forward the metaphor. He became a man like us to take away our guilt. And we are justified. We are justified. Who? will bring any charge against them, those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. I can't justify myself. We've all tried that, haven't we? We've tried to rationalize it. We've tried to blame somebody else. We've tried to blame society. Or we've blamed it on our glands or on whatever. But we, there's no self-justification. It's not available. We can't do it. We we are justified and justified by God and by God alone. He justifies us because of his grace and his love for us. We are saved. We are justified by faith. Now, I can't tell you how important that statement is in theology. It's back in the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible and it's throughout the the New Testament. It It was the basic theme of Martin Luther's preaching. And it was that message that precipitated the Reformation. Justified by faith. Justified by faith. Justified by faith. That was the clarion song of the Reformation. That was the message. Not justified by being a member of the church. Not justified by the rituals of the church. Not justified by the good works. Justified by God and God alone. And justified by faith through God's grace. In Jamaica, they're translating the Bible into uh, Jamaican lingo. It's kind of a corrupted English, pidgin English uh, language. They were having a struggle transform uh, translating the word justification in the uh, dialect of the jamaican and they had trouble finding a word and they finally came up with a phrase to define justification and i love it it says god he say i'm okay That's the best theological definition I've ever heard of justification. And I've gone to the seminary and all that sort of thing. But let me tell you, in a word, my friend, God, he say, I'm okay. Now, I'm not, I can't say to myself I'm okay. The reason I can say I'm okay is because God said, you're okay to me. Ah, You're okay, Buckner, because you put your faith and trust in me. I never will be okay in myself, nor will you, nor will anyone here. It is God who justifies Us, all of us have sinned And I've said it a hundred times I'll say it again, not one of us in this room Can go back and have a new beginning But every one of us in this room Can put our faith and trust in Christ And have a new ending Mark it down In your mind and in your heart Guilt, gone Condemnation Who is he that condemns Boy we do it ourselves don't we we condemn ourselves. Society condemns us. Sometimes it's a false guilt. Sometimes it's laid upon us by well-meaning and sincere and misguided folks. But we labor under a condemnation. And we do labor under a condemnation of rejecting God's love. You know the, you know the great sin, the great sin is rejecting God's love. That's the sin. It's not just because you break a law here or do this or do that. The ultimate sin is not returning the love of God, accepting the love of God and returning your love for Him. We're condemned. Condemn ourselves. Feel condemned by society. Sometimes it becomes a terrible treadmill. Some of you may be familiar with a remarkable writer a mysterious kind of man by the name of Franz Kafka, K-A-F-K-A. Uh, he was born in Prague. He was a businessman. He wrote stories, and he was not a religious man, but he, he wrote about from a, as the, he was called a neurotic artist, but others have said he was an artist of neuroses. He understood what was going on in the human mind, and he communicated, and he communicated and, Some very mysterious ways and some strange language. But uh, he's strong on sin but short on redemption. uh, Which is true of of a lot of literature. Uh, It's strong on sin but it's short on redemption. It doesn't know anything about knowing grace and forgiveness. Well, Franz Kafka, maybe he came to know that later in his life. I hope he did. But he wrote one story entitled The Trial. And uh, there was a banker, very uh, successful businessman, banker, by the name of Joseph, who uh, one day, the police inspector, uh, Czech language, uh, the police inspector walked into his office and said, you're under arrest, and walked out. And he went down to the police station and said, what have I done? Nobody would tell him. He said, well, you've arrested me. You say I'm under arrest? What, what have I done? Nobody would answer. He tried to get whatever the case was to court and he could never get it there. And the police inspector finally said to him, "Oh, don't, don't worry about it. Just go on and do your job as usual. Just go about business as usual. Don't worry about it. He said, don't worry about it, man. I can't sleep at night. I don't know what it is I've been accused of. I don't know where to go to find some sort of restitution or repentance or whatever it is, I'm, I'm in a quandary. And the story ends. The guy never finds out. And he is in this horrible dilemma. He cannot save himself and he cannot find somebody else to save him. He's like a dog chasing his tail. And that's man. Kafka's talking about the inner man. We feel condemned and maybe are, but we don't. what's What's the solution? I'll tell you the solution. You need to get an attorney. You need to get an attorney that can practice law at the judgment bar of God and he'll take your case and whatever it is that condemns you, whatever it is that makes you condemn yourself, He will take your case and he will plead your case at the judgment bar of God. Listen to what Paul says here. Man, this is fantastic stuff. Right out of the the heart of the third chapter of Genesis. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Wow, listen to that. Those of us who feel condemned, he said, Christ has come, taken my sin, taken my guilt, and he has died, and he has been raised again, but that's not the end of the story. He is at the right hand of God, which is a marvelous picture word. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for us, pulling for us praying for us, encouraging us, and continuing to say when we stand before God, God, this is wrong. I've done this and I've done the other. I need help. And Jesus Christ is standing there saying, Father, I know him. I'll help him. I'll strengthen him. We will stand by him. I have his case. I took his sin. He's not condemned. You're not condemned. Your sin is gone. You say that will then make you, make you, you feel permissible to go out and do anything you want to. My friend, you never know. The transformation that occurs like the transformation that occurs when you realize you have rejected God's love and you turn to accept that and find out that in spite of all the stuff we've done, we are forgiven and we are loved. The power of love can change your life. The most powerful force in the world is not law. The most powerful force in the world is love. And when you love him who first loved you, Oh, yes, you'll make mistakes, and there'll be times when you stumble, but you will never presume upon the love of God and the grace of God. You'll not want to do it, and you'll come back and say, Lord, I need your grace, I need your help, like Paul was talking about praying for the church in Ephesus. We read it just a little while ago, that we will be constantly strengthened in the inner man by God's Spirit within us to help us continue to grow in grace, not into it. You can't grow into it. You're in it by faith through Jesus Christ. That's how you get into grace. But once we're there, his Holy Spirit will help us grow and grow and grow. Condemnation, it is gone. Well, there's one last millstone hanging about our neck, isn't it? As it was around Adam and Eve. Guilt, gone. Condemnation, gone. Separation. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I want you to listen to these concluding words. You'll hear the word love three times. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, I am convinced. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Separation, gone. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You can turn your back on him and you can walk away from him. You can try to get rid of him. You know what he'll do? He'll follow you every step of the way telling you that he loves you. He came out of the garden to come to this earth, to walk down every pathway to say, I love you, I love you. i have a love for you that will not let you go. You remember Francis Thompson's poem, portion of it? The hound of heaven, talking about God, the hound of heaven, not a hound that will bite, not a hound that will kill but a hound that will rescue the hound of heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. But he found me. And he'll find you. And his love will not let you go. And his love will wipe away all of the rebellion and all of the pain and all of the sin, and all of the regrets, and everything, his love will not let you go. I don't think it's an accident at all that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead by the power of God, there was one person there that saw him. Others had been there and had gone. The disciples were all in an upper room, uh, frightened, uh, thinking that they were going to be executed next, and they The Bible says they had locked themselves in this room. Uh, But uh, the women came, Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, and Mary, the wife of Cleophas, Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene was there. And her eyes were filled with tears and it was early in the morning. And Mary Magdalene, let me tell you a little if you don't know about Mary Magdalene. She was a woman, the Bible says, out of whom the Lord cast seven devils. Now, the word seven is a word of completion, which means here's a woman that was full of the devil. Now, I don't know what she did. Uh, there are Bible students and, and uh, Bible teachers that believe that Mary Magdalene was the prostitute that washed Jesus' feet at the home of Simon the Pharisee when she crashed the party and came in and poured perfume on his feet and kissed his feet and dried his feet with the hair of her head. There's some who think that was Mary Magdalene. There are others that think that, he, that Mary Magdalene was a woman caught in the act of adultery. Whatever her sin was, she was full of it. and said she was full of the devil. Seven sin, seven devils in her. And the Lord's love transformed her completely. And she was there in the garden. Isn't it interesting that he picked the person who'd be at the very bottom of the social and moral scale? I mean, Simon Peter was not there. Matthew was not there. John was not there. A prostitute was there. And she looked up and she saw this person and she said, I thought, he's the gardener. She was right. She was correct. He was the gardener. He was the gardener who created the Garden of Eden. John tells us that by him were all things made and without him was not anything made that was made. He left the garden to come to the cross and to the tomb and to come out of that tomb to create a new garden, the garden of everlasting life for all who put their faith and trust in him. And he said to Mary, go tell the disciples. The first messenger of the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. They wouldn't let her teach some Sunday school classes in some churches I know about. She was the first proclaimer of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene. Light came to her and to those other disciples, and they went out and changed the world because they knew that Jesus Christ had pushed the back out of the tomb and that beyond it was sunlight. And death is but a door to heaven, back into the eternal, perfect garden of God's love where we will be forever because he came outside the garden. He became an ant, became a man so that we could be back with God forever and ever and ever. I guess about as succinctly as I know how to say it, that's a gospel from Genesis 3 to Romans 8. And it's all wrapped up in one word. Jesus who loves you. Pastor was talking to a little boy in church one Sunday and he said, Son, do you do you say your prayers at night? He said, Yes, sir, I do. He said, Well, do you say your prayers in the morning? He said, No, I never never pray in the morning. And the pastor said, rather surprised, "Why?" The little boy said, "I don't pray in the morning because I'm never scared when it's daylight. Perfect love casts out fear, and if you know Christ, it's perpetual. Daylight don't be." afraid. Your guilt is gone. Condemnation is gone. Separation is gone. You're one with God forever and ever and ever. Amen. I'd invite you to trust him this morning. He's already at work in your heart. You know, he comes to us before we're even Christians and creates within us a hunger for him. And I imagine somebody in this room this morning is feeling that. Well, let Jesus Christ satisfy that appetite for life that you're looking for. Accept him as your Savior. Come forward as millions have done, as thousands have done in this church, to do as Jesus said, confessing before man. To come be a part of this fellowship. If you're a Christian want to b- belong to this church, you're welcome. We invite you with open arms and an open heart, because it's his church and it's his open arms and his open heart that the- extends the invitation. So I invite you to come. Be here to greet you. Trust Christ. Join His church. Rededicate your life. Come for prayer. Kneel and return to your seat. Whatever God impresses you to do. Come. Let's stand quietly, prayerfully. No one leaving, please, except people who are walking in this direction to make that commitment to the Gardener of the Garden of Eternal Life. Trust Him and come. Let's sing.